This afternoon I preach you the Word of God as it is summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Days 16 and 17. We see what it means that he again died, buried, confessed, he descended into hell and rose again on the third day. Like to read along, you can find that in the book of praise on page 530. Here the church confesses, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are raised up to a new life, Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God died to satisfy the justice and truth of God. His death was a sin offering that calmed God's anger against the sin of everyone who trusts in him. Although there are questions about whether or not the phrase he descended into hell is the clearest way of summarizing his suffering, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ endured the unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony of the eternal punishment of God against sin so that whoever believes in him will not have to suffer the anguish and torment of hell. Jesus suffered hell on earth and then he was swallowed up by death and Sheol when he was buried in a tomb. The Gospels make it clear that Jesus really died. And the Gospel message is that Jesus suffered and died for our sakes. You can see how many times we confess that in Lord's Days 16 and 17, highlighting that he did this for us. His suffering and death served to change what our lives look like. Our Lord Jesus said in John 5, verse verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Romans 6, verses 3 to 5, explains that our faith in Jesus Christ serves to unite us to Christ so that we share both in his death and in his resurrection. When we are baptized into Christ, God treats us as a, as a part of Christ's very body so that it was like we ourselves were buried into death as a punishment for our sins. And so when we talk to one another as Christians, we can explain to one another that in God's eyes we have already died. We could say, hi, my name is so-and-so. My sins are paid for because I have already died with Christ. I'm a once dead person, but I'm not still dead. As the symbol of baptism displays so clearly, we don't stay immersed in his death, but we come out of death all cleaned up and ready for life on earth in the service of God, set free from that, the burden and the chains and slavery to sin and to death. We are united to Christ also in his resurrection from the dead. And it's this reality that we'll seek to better understand and celebrate this afternoon as I preach the gospel under this theme from Romans 6. In Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. We'll see that the old nature is crucified, the new nature is controlling, and the end of all sin is coming. When the Bible talks about our old nature, our sinful nature, or our old self, it's a reference to the fact that ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, human beings no longer have the internal desire to love God or their neighbor. Conceived and born in sin, every human being has the natural tendency to care more about themselves and their own reputations. It's like we have an inner voice that is telling us that we have a whole list of rights, a right to a comfortable life, a right to being served or honored by others. And this leads to envy when others have more success than we do or, or perhaps pride when we enjoy success by our own strength. Our old nature is so driven by selfishness that it is blind to the revelation of God in His grace and power. The old nature even taints our consciences so that this inner compass that we so often rely on dulls any feeling of guilt that we may have for disobeying God's commandments. The sinful nature makes us assess the quality of the relationships we are in by what we can get out of it. And so it makes people treat others like they might treat any other tool or instrument that they use to advance their own career or reputation. And so we can think of just some examples. When a sinful nature looks at relationships, it only asks the question, are my friends making me feel happier? Or will my husband protect me? Or will people praise me for the wife I manage to find? 
Are my children making others think highly of me? Are the authorities serving my needs and wants? And so the sinful nature assesses people and, and relationships based on what we get out of them. Well, the evidence of the selfish desires of our sinful nature are not difficult to spot in our own lives. Well, when we follow the desires of this sinful nature, we find that we are actually being led further and further away from loving and trusting in God, our Creator. And it almost always causes us to harm people around us. The old nature is then a reference to all those desires of the heart that go against God's will and God's plan. And if people are enslaved by their old nature, that means that they are dominated, they are ruled by sin, and actually unable to love God or their neighbors. And we confess that together in Lord's Day 4. Since the sinful nature makes us turn away from God in fear, that sinful nature needs to be destroyed before anyone will be able to live in fellowship with God in harmony and peace that was described and enjoyed in paradise. The new heavens and the new earth cannot be filled with people who still have, are enslaved by sinful natures. Well, the gospel of Romans 6 comes in as a bright light into this world filled with, with old natures. And the gospel declares that our old self was crucified with Christ. And you can see like verse 6, for example. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The, the apostle explains that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again, so death no longer has dominion over him. You can see that in, verse, in the following verses, verse 9. And if death no longer has dominion over Christ, it also no longer has dominion over anyone who belongs to Christ as a member of his body by true faith. Those who have died to sin with Jesus Christ, have been set free from the slavery of sin so that they no longer have to live in sin. Now when Paul uses those words, to live in sin, he's, he's describing that contentedness with sin or that persistent desire to sin more. So being set free from sin doesn't mean that people who believe in Jesus will never sin again, but it does mean that they will recognize that sin is not a good or an acceptable thing in their life so that they no longer live in sins. When our old nature is crucified with Christ, it means that we will not love our sins more than we love God, and we will be led by the Spirit to constantly fight against our sinful desires. When we are united to Christ by faith, we will consider ourselves dead to sin. You see that in verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin. How do you, how do, you do that? 
How do you consider yourself dead to sin? That means that we can know that the desires of our sinful nature no longer have the power to control us. Everyone who is united to Jesus Christ can obey the Holy Spirit, can obey the command that we read right here in in, in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We can do that because we have already died to sin. That's a very encouraging message for us when we feel so weak and so overwhelmed by temptation. The gospel is the Holy Spirit in your heart is very powerful. With God leading you by his word, you can overcome your addiction to pornography or to drugs or to work. By the grace of God, you can change your attitude toward others and seek and find forgiveness. United to Christ in his death, you can resist temptations and even the devil himself. We read in Peter, if you take your struggle against sin, fight by fight, it's not unreasonable to expect and find confession and repentance and even overcoming the struggles. We see in our lives how different programs, different encouragements and pastoral visits can lead us in this fight and give us so much confidence in Jesus Christ. We can think, for example, of the the life renewal program and how that's changed, affected so many of our lives. The gospel is you are not a slave to your sinful desires that wage war against your soul. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your old nature is crucified, put to death, buried with him. And as believers, the exhortation is remember that. Do your utmost to treat that sinful nature and those desires welling up in your hearts as something that's crucified. See them punished on the cross with Christ. Then they don't look so attractive anymore, do they? And we see that they're paid for. No matter how many temptations are, are waved at our, around us to draw, draw our attention, we, we see Christ. We see them crucified. We say, no, we know better. Why would we go back to the misery of death and slavery? When we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Well, thanks be to God that we who were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. And Paul explains that in verses 17 to 18. We have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And if you look at verse 22, by God's grace, the fruit we get, the fruit we get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see that now the new nature is controlling. The conclusion in Romans 8, 
6 verse 8 sorry, shows us how to fill the vacuum that turning away from sins will create in your own lives. One of the biggest things that we have, the fears of letting go of, of those sins that we're struggling with is, is what are we going to do in its place? We'll feel like a person missing something. Well, Romans 6 verse 4 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we're not continually searching for something to fill the void because we believe that we also live with him. This is followed by the reminder that the life that Christ lives, he lives to God. You can see that in verse 10, Romans 6 verse 10. So rather than being content to remain in sin, and rather than persistently sinning, Christians throw that aside and they fill the gap by living in Christ, content to be in His kingdom and persistently seeking to do His will. That's what the new life looks like. And Colossians 3 goes into this description in great deal. After explaining in Colossians 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. There it is again. You have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. After we put to death whatever is earthly in us, you can think of the message this morning, or Colossians 3, verse 5 to 9. We are commanded in Colossians 3, verse 10, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In Christ's resurrection, we too have been raised to a new life. You can see that picture. You can feel the joy. The death is behind you. You've passed through it. You are risen in Christ. You have new life. What what are you going to do after you shed your grave clothes? Well, we confess, we share in Christ's anointing so that we as priests might present ourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness to him. Christ's sacrifice was a sin offering so that we might offer our lives as thanksgiving sacrifices of dedication and fellowship. And we're reminded of the Old Testament sacrifices, the burnt and the grain and the peace offerings. We have been given new hearts. And it has caused a complete change, a complete turnaround in our inner controlling compass. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of belonging to Jesus Christ. God has worked into our hearts to change our orientation to look constantly to the chief end of glorifying God and serving the well-being of our neighbor. Colossians 3 verse 12 lists the virtues of the new nature that we may put on. Maybe you memorized it in your life. Including compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, bearing with one another, forgiveness, and love which binds them all together in harmony. You see, brothers and sisters, when God works in our hearts by His Holy Spirit, when He leads us past the grave into this new life, we never have to die again for our sins. 
He raises us up out of the dead orthodoxy, which is a proud and self-righteous attitude and a heartless appearance of godliness that is found rotting away within the walls of many churches. Hypocrisy is not when a person has to wear two hats and balance his office with his personal life, but it is when a person calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ, but does not love God and love his neighbor from his heart. When our new nature controls us, we are able to see the same passionate, enduring form of service that Christ displayed on the cross. And we see that evident in ourselves, in our lives. Not the casual Christianity light that only kicks into action when it's convenient for us, but the radical, self-sacrificial, countercultural, shocking commitment of new creatures who are so completely focused on worshiping God in their relationships and their work and, and their corporate worship that their faith permeates every part of their lives. We see how the Spirit leads us with fire and passion to love God and our neighbor. We can go back and think of some examples of what it looks like when that new nature is controlling us as new creatures. Now, when we establish friendships, we do so with people based on our desire to serve them. And so that together, we might both better use our gifts to the glory of God's name. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts as members of one body leads parents to be truly self-sacrificial. Not so that others will praise them for their hard work, but because they genuinely want their children to love God with all their hearts. People who offer up their new natures as sacrifices of thankfulness will work hard at their daily calling, not to satisfy their cravings to have more stuff, not even just to ensure that they themselves are comfortable, but because they know that using the abilities that God has given to us glorifies His name. And because when we succeed in earning more than we need, says Ephesians 4, verse 24, then we're also able to give to those in need. You see, that new nature controlling how we live our lives affects all our relationships. And people with new hearts will joyfully speak to others about Jesus Christ simply because they love their unchurched neighbors so much. And they feel kind of like the lepers who discovered the food left by the retreating army that was now accessible to the city of dying and starving citizens. We, we need to tell the riches that we have. Paul says it so beautifully in verse 13, Romans 6 verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
Think about your lives. Controlled by the new nature. How are you being an instrument in God's hand for righteousness? Would your words, your Facebook posts, your reactions to these posts, your interactions with others, they being used as instruments for righteousness? Would these words ever appear on a network in heaven when all sin has been banished? Well, in this context of a constant conflict between our old and new natures, it's very comforting to reflect on the reason that the Bible gives us for our own death. If we have died to sin, we're the once dead, and we've already been made alive to God, why do we still have to die? That's the question that we have in our confession. Well, the first thing we have to under, clearly understand is that our death is not a payment for our sins. We need to understand that so we understand that the fullness of the work of Jesus Christ, the freedom that we have in him. How could our death be punishment when our sins have already been punished, when God's Son died on a cross in our place? God will not punish us twice for the same sinfulness. And in the eyes of God, we have already died along with Christ since we were baptized into his death and are united to him by true faith. It's true, the sins of everyone who is not united to Christ by faith will be punished by death and a separation from God. But the sins of Christians who belong to Christ already have been punished and avenged when God punished Christ in your place. And you could see this theme coming out in Lord's Days 16 and 17. The, the benefits, what, what benefits do we receive? Well, that's the benefit. The wages of sin that we owed have been paid. None of your sufferings, brothers and sisters, none of your struggles, and sometimes it feels like somebody's working against you, none of the remaining weak, sins of weakness in your heart that you are struggling against, none of those struggles against those sins, not even death itself can ever be seen as punishment from God. We have already been punishment. And when we realize that God is not punishing us through good times or bad, but that he is rather shaping and preparing us, well, we will praise his name in all our circumstances with an attitude of reverence and with thankfulness and with desire to grow. It's tough, but we know he's not punishing us. We're not paying for our sins. We don't die to pay for our sins, but we die because the day will come for each of us when God in his wisdom decides that we have learnt and experienced what we need to before he takes us home to himself. The stress of work, the trials of fleeing from another country, the pressures accompanying the present state of emergency in our province, and in all these things, in God's sovereign control, we see his love for the church. We could see that in Hebrews 12. They're happening to discipline us, to shape us, 
They're happening to expose those parts of our sinful nature that we are holding on to that are hindering our relationship to God and to others. You know, right now, even with our new natures controlling us, we will always need to think of Matthew 18 that Jesus gave to us. We'll always need to approach our our friends, our spouses, our parents, our children to confess our sins, to offer to help them in their struggle with sins. You see how God is shaping us. Even in the midst of the struggle against sin, we still need to hear the exhortations to stop being unkind, to show some common respect to fellow Christians and co-soldiers in this congregation. The dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new is a constant process. And as God teaches us dependence and humility and trust and sincere love in this fallen world, through this process, we are well aware that we're being shaped, but we have not yet reached the point where we can experience the fullness of Christ's victory. And if it happens for you that you finish the race that God has set before us, before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will need to experience one more step on that way to perfection. Our death will be an end to the suffering caused by sins committed. But it will not remove all the consequences of the fall because our bodies and souls will not be reunited until Christ returns on the clouds on the final day of judgment. And we don't know what it will be like before Christ returns and before our bodies are reunited with our souls, but we do know that until he comes, we can see death as an entrance into eternal life. It's the next step toward victory for all those who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. On the one side of the door of death, we are still struggling against our sins and we are learning and we are growing and we are being shaped and we are seeking to to endure faithfully on the course that's set out for us by God as we look to Jesus Christ. And then we cross through death as, as a door. And on the other side of the door, there is a continuation of life on the course that God established, but now without sin. There is not a change in the status of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. There's not a change in our inner desire to glorify Him and whatever we are called to do, but there will be a change in our ability to perceive, to experience God's love. Our vision will be cleared up sins disappear. The the beginning of eternal joy that we now feel in our hearts will increase with our understanding as we wait for the day when Christ returns. And then we can worship God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, bodies and souls as one being as God made us. Then we will finally see the end to all the consequences of the fall. We long for this day praising God that we have already died to sin and already share in the righteousness which he obtained for us by his death. Even today in Christ, we are raised to, by his power to a new life. We can be sure that we will continue 
to serve him and worship him forever because Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Amen.